Today's sermon is part one of a three-week sermon series that goes with our new Sunday School Youth Adult class. The sermon series is titled, The Heart of God's Grace, A Study in Acts. As each week, we'll, amongst all of the verses, scriptures we're looking at, there will be one from Acts that fits with the theme of the week. Now, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the Sunday School class at the end of the sermon. We start today not with Acts, but with part of the Christmas story. And we're going to be reading about what happens with Joseph. Now, this is just kind of a side note, but I would ask you this question and give you this encouragement. When you read the Bible, do you just read the Bible? Is it just kind of there? Or do you, as you read the Bible, consider what is it like being the people that are being talked about? In this case, Joseph and Mary. So in just a second, we're going to read together these verses from Matthew. But men, I would encourage you to ask yourself this question as you're reading. What would you have thought if you were Joseph? Ladies, what would you have thought if you were Mary? And what happens as you and I actually engage and think about what is going on the actual relationships and conversations and actions and things, as you and I read the Bible, it begins to come to life more for us. and becomes more meaningful. It's not just some words. So remain seated and let's read together Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Let's read. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying... Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I just I realized a couple of days ago as I was working on the sermon that for whatever reason, I've actually talked about this part of things a couple of times in the last month, so bear with me if you've heard it already. Back in the time of Joseph and Mary, for Jews to get married, it was actually a two-step process. Step number one was the betrothal, what you and I would call the engagement. Part of what made it different was that when they got engaged, they actually signed a contract. And then, later... Step two, when the bridegroom had a room ready at his father's house, the marriage ceremony would take place. So step one, the engagement. Step two, the marriage ceremony. Well, as we read in Matthew, at this point, Joseph and Mary are engaged. Sometime after the engagement, an angel visits Mary. You read about that in the book of Luke. And the angel talks to Mary and said, Mary, you've been chosen by God to have a son. Your, your son actually is going to be the son of God. He also tells her about her cousin Elizabeth, who is much, much older than she is, way beyond normal childbearing years, and yet Elizabeth is pregnant. And so Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth for three months. We're not told all the details, good modern Americans, we want every detail we can get. But we're not told the details, but most likely after Mary comes back from visiting with Elizabeth. She talks to Joseph. And she tells him about the angel, about her cousin Elizabeth, and about the fact that she is, she, Mary, is pregnant. Well, Joseph doesn't believe her. 
Now, give Joseph a little bit of credit. Okay. It's been 400 years since there has been a prophet or an angel or any other really kind of miracle happening with the Jewish people. And Mary comes with this story. And he doesn't believe her, and so his intention is to divorce her quietly because back then when you got engaged and signed that contract, the only way to break the contract was with a divorce decree. And that's what he intends until the angel comes, what we just read, comes to Joseph and says, it's real. Mary was speaking the truth. Mary had not been unfaithful. And get this one, this is not mentioned, but think about it. Here's, again, guys, if you're thinking you're Joseph, do you realize what, Joseph, what occurred to Joseph? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I go ahead and do step two. I marry Mary. We have the wedding ceremony. She's now my wife. She's pregnant. She's going to have a son. And her son is the son of God. I'm supposed to help raise the son of God. Ay, yeah, yeah. Now, do you see how unlikely, how odd this is? You'll notice as I go through the sermon, I really have two themes today. One is the connected to the title of the sermon, God's a Missionary God. But the other one is this, unlikely. God does some very unlikely things, very strange way. Now, speaking of the title, God is a Missionary God, what do missionaries do? Often, almost always, they travel to a new land. They've chosen a people that they're going to work with. They travel to where those people are. They learn the language. They learn the culture. If, if somebody went to be a missionary in England, you'd say, oh, yeah, what do they need? They already know the language. You need to learn the culture. In America, you need to learn the culture. It's changing. So you travel to the new land, you learn the language, you learn the culture, you want to identify with the people, you want to connect with them, you want to be accepted. Why? Because you have something to share. You have a message to share with them. And you want the people to accept your message. And your message, we call it the gospel, the good news, where God tells us we need to be rescued. And do you realize that that is not a popular message? To tell, walk up to somebody and say, you know what, you're in trouble and you need to be rescued. For many people, it's an insult. For those that, are, that God is working in, it's, it's good news because now there's hope. So we just read in Matthew about Jesus being born. Where did Jesus come from? We find the answer indirectly in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8, along with some other very good things to have. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Right here we're told, Jesus is God. He's God the Son. God is in heaven. So Jesus came from heaven to earth. 
And then as we read in verse 7, Jesus became human. Remember, what does the missionary do? Travels to be with the people. Learns the language. Learns the culture. He connects with the people. That's what Jesus is doing. Another interesting, unlikely oddity, missionaries travel as adults. Jesus comes as a baby. Comes as a baby, and here's another unlikely thing. He's born in an occupied country with a tyrant for a king who actually tried to kill him and his family. He was born to a poor family. And again, go back and think about what is all going on in, that math, in those Matthew verses we read. He's born to parents who very possibly have a questionable reputation. Because Jesus, Mary's pregnant before step two happens, before the wedding ceremony. Unlikely. Well, why did Jesus come? We read in Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, in your bulletin, you've got below the scriptures, and I apologize, it was my oversight, we didn't get the Acts scripture in the bulletin. You've got four bullet points. We see in verse 2, why did Jesus come? He came to speak God's words to us. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. They were his spokesmen. Then Jesus comes. He is God the Son. He speaks God's words. The other thing we see in verse 3, Jesus came to show us God. So we can actually see him interact with people as we read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can actually see Jesus interacting with people. We're seeing God. We see what God likes and what he doesn't like. We see God showing compassion and healing and forgiving. We see God angry at pride and self-righteousness. We also see in verse 3, Jesus came to make purification. That is, to die. He died as a substitute. If you, look, if you go back and listen to the sermons that we did for Advent, we were looking at the Old Testament religious holidays and how they all point to Jesus, not just his birth, but his life and his work, his death and his resurrection. And then from Matthew, the verses we read at the beginning, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. And so as you look at that, what you see is you see Jesus taking the initiative. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jesus came and he spoke. Jesus came and he healed. Jesus came and he made purification. He died as a substitute for us. But when you look at the Bible, what you see is you see God taking the initiative all the way from the beginning with Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, we read, And they, talking about Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Well, he didn't say that because he didn't know where he was. He wants to have a conversation. So again, this is something that I've turns out repeated a couple of times in the last few months. God created everything in Genesis 1, and it was good. In Genesis 2, God is talking to Adam. Adam's, he's put Adam in the garden. He's talking to Adam. He says, now I want you to know the consequence of disobeying me. It's death. He tells him that while everything is still perfect. God commands, he puts Adam in the garden, he commands Adam to tend the garden, to keep it, to protect it, to, to work it. And then the idea, I believe, is for, for him to spread then the order that's there, the beauty that's there throughout the rest, of the, the rest of the world. Well, in Genesis 3, the serpent comes and tempts Eve. And we're told that Adam was with her. Now, I grew up in the church, and I've heard this I don't know how many times, but for the longest time, I missed that that Adam was with Eve. And Adam then is hearing the serpent question God's word. He's hearing the serpent contradict God's word, and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't kick the serpent out. He doesn't speak up. Instead, Adam and Eve listen to the serpent, and they choose to disobey. And immediately, immediately, they experience shame. Now, everything else was corrupted by their disobedience. But they had their shame, and so they, if you read it, they sewed fig leaves together trying to cover their shame. And when God comes, as we just read, walking in the garden, they hear him walking, and what do they do? They hide. So they can't, they can't see them. They're trying to hide their shame. And what has happened ever since then, till today and through today, we still try to hide our shame and our guilt. We try some way to deal with it, but we find out that we can't. And so what did God do? Well, we just read. God came looking for them. God calls to Adam, who was hiding. God knew he was hiding. He wanted a conversation. Could God have done something different? Yes. He could have destroyed them, but he didn't. And if God had destroyed Adam and Eve, he would have been just in doing that. But he didn't, because he'd already decided he was going to do something else before he ever created Adam and Eve. So instead of destroying them, God made a promise that one day the serpent, who was Satan, would be destroyed by the son of a woman, that takes us back to what we just started with in Matthew. The son that was born to Mary. Jesus. And then, God covered their shame. A hint of what Jesus would do in a much bigger way for all of us to cover our shame. Well, that's the beginning. I want to give you a very quick review of Old Testament history. Now, some of you, as soon as you heard me say that, you just groaned inside. Oh, no. I thought I was done with school. It hadn't started yet. The good news about this kind of history review is you're not going to get tested on it. So you can enjoy it. But I want to do this review because I, there's a pattern. There's a very clear pattern, and I want you to see it, of what God does. Genesis 6, only a few pages after Genesis 3, God comes to Noah. 
and tells him, one, God's going to destroy the world with a flood because of the wickedness of people, but he's going to provide a way of rescue. And he gives Noah the job of building the ark. Now, it took Noah over a hundred years to build that ark. Now, think about it. The ark was probably the very first tourist attraction. I wouldn't even be surprised if some enterprising person back then said, you know what, I'm going to do ark tours. So we'll take you out so you can see this thing. Now, if you've been to the Creation Museum in Kentucky, you can now, I guess for the last couple of years, see a full-size uh, model of a section, just a little piece, right? Or is it the whole thing? The whole thing, okay? I haven't been there yet to see it. It's huge. It is really, really big. You can't miss it. That's why I think maybe it was a tourist attraction, okay? Because people would come to see it. Well, it took Noah 100 years to build it. There was plenty of opportunity for Noah to talk to people and to tell them what God had said. That he promised destruction because of wickedness, their wickedness, but he was also providing a way of rescue. And you read it and you see what happened. The people ignored Noah. That's Genesis 6. Just only go to Genesis 12 and God comes to Abram better known as Abraham. And in the very first conversation that God has with Abraham, he gives them a list of promises, the last one of which is fulfilled when Jesus comes. But when you look at all of the Bible and you see what all it says about Abraham, you'll, you'll find out this. When God comes to Abraham and begins this conversation and begins this relationship, Abraham has already turned away from God and he's worshiping other gods just like everybody else around him, even though it's not that long after the flood is over. Abraham's turned away, and yet God comes to him. You read the story of Abraham, and you see he has lots of character flaws, which makes it very clear that Abraham does not deserve God's kindness, his goodness. One of the promises was that Abraham would have a son, Isaac, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And when you read all about Isaac and Jacob and Esau, their lives are worse than a soap opera. It's unbelievable how messy and messed up they are. And yet God does not give up on them. God gives Jacob 12 sons. They marry. His whole family, extended family, go to Egypt where God provides for them. Now God had warned them that they were going to become slaves, and they did. So 400 years later, God comes to Moses. And God uses Moses first to rescue the people out of slavery and then lead them <clears throat> to the promised land. Well, now it turns out that trip took 40 years. But if you read the details, you find out it took 40 years because of the people's disobedience. And they, they didn't, their disbelief. They didn't believe God. They didn't obey Him. And that was the result. Yet God provided food and water, one to two million people every day for 40 years. God provides Joshua who leads them and, gives, and God gives them the land of Canaan that he promised to give them. Now with Moses, God had given them his law so they could see God's character. After Joshua, <clears throat> if you're going through the Old Testament, you come to the book of Judges. And what you find is that the people are fickle. Sometimes they listen to God, and a lot of times they don't. 
They kind of waffle back and forth. And so whenever they turn away from God, God gives them some unpleasant consequences. <clears throat> and if you read it, you will find, at least in one case, it took them 20 years of misery before they finally decided they'd had enough and turned back to God. When they turn back to God, God provides a judge, a person, to rescue them and lead them. <clears throat> but they keep turning away. By the way here, the issue here with turning away from God isn't breaking a set of rules. It's turning away from a relationship with God. Because if you read the Bible all the way through, you'll see in Exodus and Leviticus, starting there, all the way to the book of Revelation, God says over and over again, I will be your God and you will be my people. He wants a relationship. I'm going to speed things up a lot here. After the time of the judges, the people asked for a king. In asking for a king, they have rejected God and God's leadership. So they give them King Saul, who doesn't really love God. Then they get King David, who loves God but sins big. Then King David's son Solomon starts well, but he indulges himself. And not only does he turn away from God, he ends up leading the people to turn away from God as well. The result of all that is that the nation is divided into two. The northern kingdom never has a king for 200 years. Never has a king that loves God. Just turns away from him. Southern kingdom is mixed. Some kings love God. Some do not. What happens? The people turn away. What does God do? He sends prophets. They're his spokesmen. To warn them, encourage them, get in their face, tell them stories. Stories sometimes with their own lives. God wants them back to have a relationship. Well, after 200 years of rebellion, the northern kingdom is gone. just disappears. God sends more prophets. The southern kingdom has seen all of this, and they still turn away from God. So he sends them into exile for 70 years. They become slaves. They've lost their homeland. Then he returns them. He sends more prophets, and the people's hearts still are far from God. Now, hopefully you saw a couple of things in this. One, that left to ourselves, you and I, will turn away from God. But here's the other one, and this is the part that's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. If you look at how many times people turned away from God, well, what did God do? He pursued them. He went after them. He sent prophets to them. He spoke to them directly at times. And when you stop and you slow down, and you think about that, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, God was doing this for 2,000 years, just from Abraham to Jesus, not counting what he did before and what he's done after. 2,000 years goes after, goes after, pursues. That's amazing. And then he sends his son. Now, another little unlikely piece. God chooses 12 of the most unlikely men to be his followers. Absolutely unlikely. One of them ends up um, betraying Jesus to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders murder Jesus. But they do it on Jesus' timetable when he was ready. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. As he rises from the dead, he defeats sin and death. Jesus promises that he'll send his spirit But just the, the night he was betrayed, <clears throat> he was praying 
And we have the prayer. We have it recorded for us in John 17. John 17, verses 17 to 20, Jesus says this as he prays to God. He says, sanctify them, talking about his followers, in the truth. Sanctify means to set apart, to purify, to change. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Then verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If we knew the names, we could start a chain of people from Jesus and his followers all the way through time to today to you and me. Isn't that amazing? There is that chain of people that God used, God spoke to, God worked through, where his word continued all the way through. And we see it right here in verse 20. Jesus was praying not just for those 12 disciples, not just for those other larger group that was following him, but for everybody, including you and me. And then in Acts 1, verse 8, after Jesus died and rose up and rose from the dead for 40 days, he taught his followers. And then on the day that he returned to heaven, he told them this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In John 17, when Jesus prays for his followers, he's praying about Christians. He was sending his followers. He's sending Christians. Last week in our sermon, we saw that, that we are called by God to imitate him. He pursued people. He wants us to pursue people. Jesus in his teaching told his followers he wants us to be salt and light to the world around him. Acts 1.8, he tells us we are to be his witnesses. You know, salt only works, it's only good if it's out of the shaker and on the food. The light is only good if it's where you are. If you have a light in the other end, on an end of your house and the rest of your house is dark, it doesn't do you any good. The light has to be there to help Dispel the darkness. You put John and Acts together, Jesus is sending us. It's the same pattern that you see in the Old Testament. God came himself after the people. God sent his prophets to speak. God the Spirit comes after people. God uses us, Christians, also to work. And so as you think about it, Jesus put you in the family that you have. He puts you in the school that you're in or in the job that you're in, in the neighborhood that you're in. And he wants you and me, as we live our lives every day, ordinary lives, to be doing, and, and in that living, we're going to do some good and sometimes we're going to fail, but he wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to be witnesses. Have you ever been a witness in a trial? I think most of us have probably seen it. I actually had the opportunity years ago to be a witness I was an eyewitness to an accident that involved a bus, and I actually can't remember why it went to trial, but it did. And I got called. Well, what does a witness do? They tell what they've seen and heard. The witness tells what happened to them. And Christians are being sent as witnesses of what God has done in us through Jesus, which means that you don't have to have any special knowledge. 
You don't have to go to seminary to be a witness. If God's worked in your life, you have something to tell. Why does God call us to be witnesses? Go back to the title. God is a missionary God. God comes after us. God sends us then to others. Now as I look at the modern Western Christian church, I think there is a way in which we have kind of twisted and truncated God's good news. We've shortened the gospel effectively to be the gospel is good news for me. And oh, and if other people outside the church, you're welcome to join us if you're willing to become like us. That's not God's gospel. His gospel is, he says, he spreads it. In, in the parable of the sower, the farmer, he's just, I've, I've seen some people do it, he takes out a hand of, of seed and he just goes, whoa, just all over the place, just throwing his seed all over the place. Some of us would take a seed, put it in the ground. Another seed, put it in the ground. God's throwing the seed out. He wants to share his word, and what he says is, come as you are. Come as you are. There's no prerequisite to come into a relationship with God. There's not a list of things you have to do and qualifications you have to meet to have this relationship with God. God came looking for us. He invites us into a relationship with him, and he wants us to invite others into that relationship as well with him. Now, I grew up in the church, in the Christian church, being taught to present the gospel, that is to make a presentation about the facts of God's offer to people who already had some basic knowledge of the Bible and his message. Today, the world isn't the same as when I was learning that. It's different. Most people today don't have a basic knowledge of the Bible and its message. In fact, most people have accepted other messages about life's purpose and origins. Here's the thing. Those messages don't answer life's deepest questions, and those messages don't satisfy life's deepest needs. And so what you find, if you're looking and listening is you find that there are people all around you that have got all kinds of ideas that they will be glad to tell you about. When you kind of cut through it and get down a little deeper, they're looking. They're hungry. Because what they've found, what they've embraced so far, hasn't satisfied. Well, the purpose of the Sunday school class that we start today is to introduce us it's just that, an introduction. Introduce us to a way of talking with others that is called conversation. Where you talk, you ask questions, you listen, you go back and forth. Maybe you ask a few more questions. If they have some questions, you try to answer them. And then the other part of it is you're, you're looking for an opportunity and for people who are open to talk about spiritual things and as they're willing to listen, you can share with them your story. How God is important to you. That faith is important to you. And I'm not going to try to teach you the entire Sunday school lesson right here in two minutes. But you get the idea. It's a conversation. And if the person isn't interested, 
You don't talk to them about spiritual things at that time. But you pray that they would become interested. And some might, and some might not. It's a different way of interacting with people. But, but kind of at the core of it is this same picture that you get when you look at Jesus in the New Testament. We're told that Jesus looked at people and he had compassion. That is, he looked at people and he cared. He cared for them. He helped them. He was a friend to them. And that's what God wants us to be. He wants to care about people and to be friends with them. And as God provides opportunity to share, to witness, to say, this is who God is to me. Are you interested? Let me close with a question. If you're here today and you're a Christian, aren't you glad that God sent other people into your life to share his good news with you? It could have been your parents, it could have been a pastor, it could have been a Sunday school teacher, Bible study, it could have been a, a, a sibling, it could have been a friend at school, any number of people, and maybe any and all of those used by God because the path from where we are to, to knowing God and growing with God, there's lots of people involved. Aren't you glad God sent those people to, teach, to, to share with you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> that you are a missionary God. You're the one that comes after us, and you've called us to be a part of that. It's just a scary thing, actually. But we thank you that you love us, and we pray that you would give us love for others. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love. We thank you for being you. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in and through us as a church family, that you would grow us, that you'd help us to be imitators of you, to be imitators of Jesus. We thank you again that you came looking for us and that you love us. And as we sang about, your love will never fail, it will never stop. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.